Hello, and welcome to Story and Fiction Podcast number 28. The award-winning short stories, The Bear, Father Ryan, and Lost Papers, read by the author. The first story, The Bear, is about two trappers and a boy in Alaska. The boy angers a bear who seeks revenge with unrelenting rage. I'm Bill Coles, your host. So let's get started. The Bear by William H. Coles We left our two snowmobiles, crossed a frozen river that I knew wouldn't carry the vehicles with my brother-in-law, Arrow, weighing 340 stripped and riding his 12-year-old stepson, Sean, my sister's kid by her first husband. I led the way, shouldering my Winchester 70, Sean with a 22 rifle, his legs spread wide trying to keep in my snowshoe tracks, and Arrow with the Savage 110. We checked the traps. Two snares were empty, and one of the spring loaders had a small hind leg in the clamp claws, but something had ripped off the body. Coyote did it, Errol said. Bigger than that, I said. We began to circle back to the rigs. Sean's twenty-two discharged. I'm hit, Earl moaned to scare the kid. Sean started to cry. He didn't think good and had no schooling. Errol slapped him on the back of the head. Grow up, he said. I was joking. Sean stood. Bear, he said, pointing to the edge of the clearing. The sun was low and the shadows long over the snow cover, and the trees in the forest seemed welded together. He's big, Errol said. Sean fired a shot. The bear reared back on his haunches. He's government protected. You heard him. The boogeyman put you in jail, Errol said. The bear had dropped on all fours and was walking toward us in a squiggly line. Let's move, Earl said, and broke into a run. But Sean fell. I stopped. Earl reached his rig and took off. I got the kid standing. Don't run, I said, but move fast. We only had a hundred feet to go when the bear hit full stride on all fours. We mounted. I got the rig moving, Sean straddling the gas can. We caught up to Earl. You left the kid, I said. Earl shrugged. Hey, he's your bud, Ken, he said. Not mine. A cloud cover rolled in and we had to camp early. We rigged a nine-foot-high platform on four sturdy pines for me and Earl to sleep. Within reaching distance, I strung a hammock high for Sean. The moon reflected pewter patches of light on the snow. We were unable to sleep. After midnight, we heard limbs cracking. The bear was on us. Errol reached for his gun, but his weight shifted, and he tumbled to the ground, his gun trapped under him. The bear tore at him. Errol screamed, then gurgled a moan, then nothing. He, he gonna eat us? Sean asked. I could see the whites of the bear's eyes. The snout slashed with Errol's blood. He swatted at us with his claws and the platform rocked. I clutched a tree trunk and looked for a gun. The bear turned from Errol and roared. The kid whimpered. I needed a distraction. I unsheathed my knife and cut the rope to the kid's hammock, thinking he'd be a momentary diversion. He fell. Run, I yelled. But the bear caught the kid in the air. The kid screamed but was silent by the time I shinnied down the farthest pine and ran for my rig. I drove twenty miles and dismounted at the top of a ridge. First light painted me with warmth I knew was imagined. In minutes the sun broke the horizon, 
blood red with an orange halo, and the distant cloud underbellies turned purple. I'd never seen such beauty. Thank you, dear God, I yelled as the sun exploded into the sky. I was alive. I was special. You the man, I yelled to the heavens. My echo faded. Behind me, a coyote howled into the landscape. Then I heard the cracks of dead tree limbs. Something big, something heavy. The second story, Father Ryan. The bishop is escorting Father Ryan from Boston to his new assignment in Idaho for rumored salacious activity. Here's the story, Father Ryan. The wind gusts between the walkway and the airplane door chilled Father Ryan as he waited for Bishop Henley to move into the cabin. Father Ryan's hand swept across his rustled thick head of light brown hair as the flight attendant smiled and turned to open a can of tomato juice in the galley. Inside the cabin was warm and humid. The bishop pushed ahead for his assigned window seat in first class. Are you sure you wouldn't like the aisle, sir? Father Ryan said with a touch of sincere sympathy for the bishop's large frame and cramped circumstances. But there was more than a little sarcasm, too. The bishop liked to look down with a divine sweep of gaze over his ecumenical territory as they took off, a move Father Ryan described often to the delight of all who knew the bishop. The bishop did not answer. Being around Father Ryan had consistently engulfed him in an intense, resentful smoldering. The bishop thanked God for this duty of taking Father Ryan from Boston to his new parish in Idaho, and he pushed aside any guilt of being delighted to never speak to Father Ryan again, except maybe at conferences. Being rid of this priest gave him hopeful expectations of a tranquil future. After much prayer, the bishop believed that his dislike for Father Ryan was not just at personality clashes, but an appropriate distaste for his loose, too-friendly demeanor with the parishioners. That, the bishop was sure, had been the source of the complaint, too, from a young married woman whom the bishop did not trust but could not ignore. During the bishop's interview with the complainant, she had been unable to hide surprise and pleasure and the touch of mischievousness in her eyes at the moment when the bishop expected anger and accusation. She did not claim assault or even touching. Suggested, she said. He hinted, she added. Was she a prevaricator? Probably. But with all the recent sex scandals among the clergy, he could not let this explode. He'd seen enough in his 35 years of service to the Lord to know when danger lurked. The situation still stressed the bishop. The bishop was particularly confused by Father Ryan's response to his admonition over the young woman's complaint. Was her name Helen? Initially, Father Ryan seemed perplexed, unable to mount a defense, and then the bishop saw a switch to defiance with a definite touch of pride and with Father Ryan's ever-present glint of humor. After that confrontation, Father Ryan refused to even address the complaint with the bishop, much less defend himself, as if he considered it trivial and unworthy of self-recrimination. Father Ryan's bag slipped into the overhead easily. 
The first-class seat yielded pleasantly to his flesh. "'Are you comfortable, sir?' he said to the bishop. "'You seem tense.' The bishop watched the ground crew disconnect hoses and truck baggage. He resented Father Ryan's so public observation on his temperament and physical condition. Was it, as always, wry? Or was that fair? Could Father Ryan be innocently sincere? Erroneous thinking there. Father Ryan was definitely cursed with a well-developed sense of satire that had not a smidgen of sincerity. The bishop tried to appear unconcerned. No one of his status should be ruffled by such a routine administrative problem as Father Ryan. The bishop sighed silently. After the pre-flight preparations, the plane began its takeoff roll. Father Ryan leaned back to enjoy the thrust of the engines, the ebullient disconnection from the earth. Father Ryan noticed the bishop's hands were gripping the armrest and knew the bishop was praying by rote for safety and survival, and probably not including any of his colleagues, especially Father Ryan. Father Ryan believed the bishop's attitudes and unjust accusations toward him were unfounded, and even though Father Ryan would never let on, they had kindled the greatest humiliation in him. He was celibate, proudly so, and his dedication to Christ and the Church had never wavered. Father Ryan had instantly forgiven Helen— it was a refined name, Helen. He had come to think of her as Helen of Troy the entire time he knew her. She was, in a quirky way, beautiful. Married, but standing on the fortifications of Troy for all the enemy to see with unshakable self-confidence in her allure. She was justly proud. Father Ryan still felt the right approach had been to not appear defensive or accusatory to the bishop. That would have yielded a loss of dignity, and a resultant suspicion in the truth of Helen's claims. So he did not defend himself. In fact, he had been complimentary of Helen, refusing to admit to himself he had enjoyed her company. In all honesty, he had angered at first over Helen's misunderstanding of his intentions. But he had immediately decided Helen deserved the benefit of the doubt concerning his desire to complain, which he reasoned was reflexive and not personal. After all, she had enjoyed the talks and the confessions. She had said that and she had known he was celibate, teased him once about it. But he'd done nothing, and was innocent of provocation in the judgment of his maker, and that was enough. He found solace in his will of forgiveness for her spiteful visit to the bishop. She deserved his forgiveness. She was hard-working, and he was sure she feared God. Father Ryan accepted the relocation without protest to higher authority, divine or administrative and he forgave the bishop for his actions, too, which were probably inevitable in the circumstances. They had reached cruising altitude. The flight attendant in first class had a lovely shape, Father Ryan thought. Just lovely. He imagined her name was Janice. As she bent over to serve the other passengers, he savored, dear God, he did savor the lovely curve of her backside. Not a sin, he thought immediately. Admiration is not a sin and Priest had a right to be human at times. He had always believed that. He sneezed. His allergies were in full bloom. She walked toward the back of the plane. She did not look at him as he waited for her to reach his aisle. She looked to others across the aisle. He touched her thigh, about halfway between the knee and the pelvis, a thigh with implied softness under the tight fabric. He touched just enough to get her attention. "'Excuse me, uh, do you have a tissue?' Father Ryan said. 
her face flushed and contorted into harsh lines. Don't touch me, she said. Father Ryan stared. I wanted to. You touch me. Don't do it again. Father Ryan wiped his nose with the back of his hand. I have allergies. Ask, but don't touch, she repeated with renewed emphasis. She moved, making a show of pleasantness to those in the next row, ignoring the priest. Uh, that's embarrassing, the bishop said to Father Ryan. The bishop sighed audibly. Dear God, why does it not surprise me? A misunderstanding, sir, Father Ryan said with less authority than he wanted. The bishop turned to look out with his divine glare over the state of Pennsylvania. An hour later, Janice inched the service cart down the aisle. Father Ryan watched the grace of her skillet smiling and handling and pleasing. She anchored her cart in the aisle near his row and started with those passengers opposite him. She dropped a drink can that bounced off a seat onto the arm and spewed liquid. She bent over with her backside less than a foot from Father Ryan. He reached to the cart for napkins to help her clean up. Clutching a small stack of napkins, his hand started its path from the cart to the floor, and the back of his hand accidentally made contact with Janice's backside flesh. He knew immediately the implications of the accident, and in his surprise he dropped the napkins. She stood up, her hand moving with the speed of light of a heavenly ray, the open palm poised to hit him. But she stopped and clasped her hands the restrictions of her professional training overriding her feelings, and her face turned tense as if she might cry. I can report this, you know, she said. I was reaching for my napkins, Father Ryan said, afraid he had delayed too long with his explanation to comfort. She seemed rebuked now. Her features remained rigid. It's okay, Father Ryan said. I understand. He tried to smile, but his frown of concern remained. The chief flight attendant arrived. Janice whispered in his ear. Uh, one more time and I'll put you in handcuffs, the chief flight attendant said to Father Ryan. I have the authority. There is uh, no need to threaten, the bishop said, irritated to be defending Father Ryan again under the halo of the church. I can assure you Father Ryan meant no harm. The chief flight attendant considered this for a few seconds. He glanced at Janice with suspicion. The frown on his face suggested this was not Janice's first altercation. Of course, he said, let's just forget it. Janice deliberately avoided eye contact with Father Ryan. He smiled. He noticed her badge said her name was Esther. Well, she didn't strike him as an Esther. He was determined to always think of her as a Janice especially now that her lovely eyes carried this spark of interest. Now Janice stared at Father Ryan with almost an apologetic motherly benevolence before she followed the male flight attendant up the aisle. Father Ryan read St. Thomas Aquinas mechanically, his mind revisiting the words on the page as his thoughts dwelt on his words and glances with Janice. The bishop looked out the window. After an hour, Father Ryan put down his book. I seem to be having a run of bad luck, Father Ryan whispered, leaning toward the bishop and holding the flat of his hand near his mouth to assure the bishop knew this was confidential and to exclude any passengers from hearing his words. Father Ryan waited, but the bishop did not turn his head. I pray about it, but sometimes it seems unjust, Father Ryan paused. The accusation, am I a victim of divine punishment? The bishop finally did look at him with a noncommittal stare. 
Sorry, sir, Father Ryan said. It's just these things test my faith at times. Not now. This is minor, of course. But with the greater injustices, I do wonder at times. Does God care? The bishop stared out the window again to marvel at the Mississippi. The aortic lifeline he was well aware of from occasional visits to the heathen of the Louisiana diocese. When the bishop made no attempt to respond, Father Ryan picked up his book and opened to a random page to start reading. Janice rolled her service card into first class from the galley. The bishop had red wine. Father Ryan declined. Janice smiled and handed him salted penis. Uh, will you be leaving us in Salt Lake City? she said sweetly. Yes, the bishop said before Father Ryan could answer, turning again to the window. Janice handed Father Ryan two paper napkins. Uh, for your allergies, Father. You might want to put them in your pocket. She quickly rolled the cart down the aisle. Father Ryan glanced at the second napkin with a torn edge. In ballpoint pen, Janice had written a phone number. The bishop had not seen, thank God. Father Ryan stuffed the napkins into his side pocket and put his head back. Father Ryan did not believe he was a man of the world, but he knew Janice's gesture for what it must be. She had misunderstood him, probably not cognizant of his devotion to his vows. Protestants often seemed unaware of such things, but it was worse. She failed to respect him for his piety. She assumed his licentious intent, and that was unfair. His distress agitated him, and he made his way down the aisle to the rear restroom. He splashed water on his face, rubbed his neck to relieve the tension. Back in his seat, some of his composure returned slowly over the next hour. He reflected with his earphones delivering the pocketbell. Was there something about him that precipitated such behavior in Janice? He never provoked, surely not. He had dedicated his life to Christ. No one could mistake that, and that eliminated provocation. And he was not one of those priests who, with clandestine unconcern, ignored celibacy. Look at the French, the Italians. He was not among them. He drummed his fingers on the seat arms. He found his gaze darting here and there without purpose. He removed his earpieces and, with his iPod, stuffed them in the seat pocket in front of him. The music had begun to grate on his ears. Finally, he put down the tray table, crossed his arm, and lowered his head. Doubt swept through him. Did I look to that woman with lust in my heart? When he raised his head, the bishop was staring at him, his eyes hard with distrust. You're incorrigible, the bishop said. Father Ryan looked away, close to tormented the lust might be in him forever, like the blood of the lamb after the Eucharist. The third story, Lost Papers, is about Isaac the Jew and Rebecca, his wife of 20 years, who in the early 1940s stand in line at a checkpoint between Germany and Switzerland for three hours to be allowed to cross into Switzerland to bring home the recently orphaned daughter of Isaac's brother. 
but Rebecca's papers are lost and she must stay in Germany under fear of arrest as Isaac crosses into Switzerland with dark secrets and betrayal. Let's listen to Lost Papers, the last story in this podcast. It is 1941. Isaac the Jew and Rebecca, his wife of 20 years, stand in a line at the checkpoint between Germany and Switzerland for three hours before they reach the barrier. Passports, the guard says in German. Isaac hands over his documents. You are from a... Born in Munich, Isaac says. You are going to Zurich? No, no, to Basel. I must meet my brother's daughter, now orphaned. She is alone and will be waiting at the train station. Friends have sent her. You woman, the guard says. Where are your papers? Rebecca does not look up from her frantic search in her bag. I I cannot find them, she says. She has slipped into her native Polish. She will find them, Isaac says. Uh, Go to the back of the line, the guard says. Next. Isaac grabs Rebecca's arm and takes her to the side. Incompetent, he whispers. I thought they were here, she pleads. Maybe you have them. Why would I have them? He sets down his satchel, then empties the contents of her bag on the ground, unzips, unbuttons, unwraps. But there are no papers. I must go to meet Anna, Isaac says. She will be frightened. I cannot stay here, Rebecca says. One of the women said the Gestapo make arrests. You must find your papers. They were in my bag. Someone has stolen them. The papers must be found across the border. Stay here. I will be back the day after tomorrow with Anna. You don't care that I can't go, she sighed. He holds her shoulders and brought his face close to hers. I am not the cause of your carelessness. It will soon be over. Anna will be with us. She cries. You care more for your brother's illegitimate child than your own wife. Hold your tongue, he says. He releases her. Hide for your safety. Do not be conspicuous. He goes back to the line and passes into Switzerland without restraint. At the Basel train station, he finds Anna sitting alone on a bench against the outside station wall under an overhang to keep out of the rain. Anna looks up. Is that you, Papa? He takes the child in his arms. Yes, it is me, your Papa. Her likeness to her loving mother pleases him with sweet memories of their time together. Mama said you were a small man, she says, looking up at him after he puts her down. Your mama was a good woman. Grab your things and we will go to a new life. It's all arranged. Do you have your papers? Yes, Papa. She pats the pocket of her sweater. They are not safe there, Isaac says. He takes the papers from her, opens his satchel, and tucks them in the top slot between his other papers. It takes a day and a half to walk to the border. At the official Swiss border, Isaac shows the agent his papers from his pocket. Then he opens up his case. He hands papers over. Uh, You are Rebecca, the Swiss agent says in French. Anna laughs. No, monsieur. Je m'appelle Anna. Isaac opens his case again. He finds Anna's papers in the top slot. Excusez-moi, monsieur, Isaac says with a strained laugh. He holds out the papers to the agent. Who is this, Rebecca? The agent says, handing the papers back. Uh, She is my wife, monsieur. Isaac trembles. The papers flutter to the ground. 
and helps collect them. You must be more careful with your documents, the agent says. It is my eyes, monsieur. I lost my glasses and I do not see well. But he had kept Rebecca's papers to prevent her from talking to Anna. Rebecca must never know his relationship to the girl. Anna's papers are accepted. They pass into Germany. Isaac begins searching for Rebecca. She is old with hair like cobwebs, Isaac says to Anna. She does not know about your mama or that you are ma petite poupée. He smiles. She thinks Uncle Aaron was your father. That will be our secret, no? Will we see her soon? Anna asks. She's probably in hiding, Isaac says. After two hours of searching in alleys and behind buildings, Isaac knocks on doors of homes in the village. Maybe someone has taken Rebecca in for the night. They look, but no one has seen a woman called Rebecca. In the town square, the butcher remembers seeing a woman in the street hiding in the shadows near the end of yesterday. But he does not know where she went. What will I call her? Anna asks. We will call her Mama, Isaac says. Can you do that? I think so, Anna says, nodding. The baker's been busy from 4 a.m. making the dough for fresh loaves and baguettes. Yesterday before dawn, the baker says, the Gestapo herded Jews and people without papers into a truck. I saw her, but no one knows where they were taken. Anna takes her father's hand and pulls him away. He is dry-eyed, his mouth open, his chapped lips cracked. Will we find her, Papa? Anna asks. Of course, he says. He hides his trembling hands in his pockets. She is here, somewhere. These stories and more than 35 others can be enjoyed free online, as well as five novels at storyandliteraryfiction.com, a website dedicated to providing resources for fiction writers. Resources that include essays, interviews, a blog, a newsletter, a workshop, a tutorial, and much, much more. Thanks for listening, and goodbye. This podcast is a production of storyandliteraryfiction.com.